Yesterday, I officiated a funeral for a teenager who was planning to come and visit Highlands Community Church today. You don't have a guarantee for tomorrow with your children, parents. You teach them the word of God and teach it to them in full context, the whole word of God. Parents, lead your families in scripture. Lead your families in prayer. Lead your families in worship. Lead your families by example. When you fail, you show your kids how to get back up again. And when you triumph, you give God 100% of the credit for it all. Teach them everything that God has commanded, everything that God has said. Everywhere you go, whether you sit, stand, lie, walk, drive, tweet, whatever you do, do so in honor of God's word because all scripture, every book of the Bible is breathed out by God and is useful for teaching, rebuking, and training in righteousness so the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. We're in the book of Deuteronomy. We're gonna look at chapter six. I'm just gonna get a few nachos from, from chapter six because some of you are sinners and you aren't part of a small group. Chapter six, verses one through 13 is, this, is the, the focal text for the small group curriculum that is used by middle school, high school, adults, everybody through the cemetery. And it looks at the exact same passage every week. So moms and dads of students, you're looking at the exact same passage in small group to the verse that your student is. And you're looking at verses one through 13. I wanted to establish context verses, from verses four through nine with this historic prayer known as the Shema. And then I want to glimpse at something in chapter seven and read all of chapter eight. These are texts from which Jesus draws when he's tempted by the devil. When Satan tempts Jesus, Jesus responds with text from today's passages. Jesus quoted this text. Look at Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four with me. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This text is called the Shema, coming from the opening words, hear, O Israel. And to call, this call to hear has more to do has, has far more to it than just merely having functioning ears. Hear the word of the Lord, receive and abide in that which God teaches, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. When Jesus was confronted in a trapdoor scenario by the Pharisees, asking him which commandment was greatest. He responded with this text. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets are summed up in these. 
The trap door scenario was such that if he had said this commandment, they would say, well, you didn't say this commandment. If he said these commandments, well, you didn't say those commandments. Because in this era, in Jesus' context, in the world of the scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, young rabbis eager to be published were quite eager to have their own addendums added within the Talmud, to take what God said in the law and have their own addendums added onto it, their own qualifications, their own, their own additional rules and regulations to follow. And Jesus goes the opposite opposite direction and he sums up all of the law and all the prophets. What is the law? That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and today's text in Deuteronomy. And all the prophets, all the whole Old Testament, Jesus sums up in these two laws. He goes the opposite direction from the typical scribe, the typical Pharisee, and he speaks to the intent and the heart of the law. You could see a foreshadowing of what was going to take place in Israel as God would take their heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh that they would love God with their hearts. He would place his law within them. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. This teaching to love God, this command to, to follow everything that God has said and to teach them diligently to our children, the first clause of verse seven, speaks to the very mission that led to Highlands Community Church in the first place. Do you know this began as a ministry to children? People working at the, the Boeing plant, building the, the B-17s, their children were gathered here and were ministered to. That's how Highlands Community Church originally started. In honor of this, to teach diligently to children everything that God's word had said. Now, if you don't have kids, you don't have kids at home, you don't get to tune out, you don't get to play Angry Birds because the rest of the text still applies to you. All right, it says that we are to talk about the law of God, talk about what God has said when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise, wherever you are, that the word of the Lord would be on your heart. Now, this, this may come as a shock to you, but there are other parts of the U.S. culturally where people will put on their Christianity like they put on makeup. Oh, it's time to act like a Christian today. This text speaks to the polar opposite of that. I'm very blessed to do ministry here in the Pacific Northwest where the decision to follow Christ comes at cost and it is a risk to be known as a Christian and you associate with Jesus at your own professional peril and to be known as a, as a Christian is to be marked with a false stigma fashioned by the enemy. In the deep south, what I saw over and over again was something called cultural Christianity where people would act like Christians only on Sundays act like Christians only at Christmas, only at Easter, and bear no fruit of the Holy Spirit, have no repentance, no evidence of God's work in their lives every other day of the week. What we found in coming to the Pacific Northwest is that there's actually a barrier removed to evangelism. Because in the Deep South, we often had to convince people, no, you're not actually saved before we could evangelize them. Whereas here, I mean, the Buddhist across the street knows full well that he is not a Christian. It actually makes things more efficient for me. This text says that there can be no cultural Christianity, no Sunday-only Christians, no CEOs, Christmas, Easter-only Christians. And we're called to think about the word of God, to bind them as a sign on our hands. This is applied literally in, in some Orthodox Jewish cultures with something called the Tefillin. 
these, this cord wrapped around the arm or as frontlets between the eyes. This is also applied literally in some Orthodox Jewish cultures through the phylacteries, this little box that is bound around the head right here between the eyes with a, a copy of the law written on it. And on the doorpost of your house and on your gates, some of you have actually abided by this inadvertently. If you bought some piece of artwork at Hobby Lobby that, that you put at the front door of your house and it says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Have you ever seen these artistic renderings of that verse? That's a mezuzah. You did something accidentally Jewish when you bought that. <laughs> it comes from Deuteronomy 6. It comes from the Shema. Households in Spain, older homes, have these indentations at the threshold of the door. That's where the mezuzah was embedded. Where somebody who wrote out the law of God and knew that what he was writing was the inspired law of God would write it down, be scrolled up and placed within the mezuzah and right there at the doorpost of your house or at your gate. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. That word diligently makes this all the more difficult, doesn't it? This is a hard book. This is a big book. Like, Jesse, I'm a brand new Christian myself. How can I teach my kids a book I haven't read yet? Like, how... How can I diligently instruct my children in something that I don't fully understand? I mean, how, how can I teach my kids this stuff that I, I don't fully get? All I know is that I've encountered Jesus and I've, I, I've been transformed by him and every now and then I might still fall into temptation, but I know I'm not who I used to be anymore. I don't have a degree in theology. I, don't, I, I need community. I need brothers and sisters in Christ walking with me through this. I, I, Jesse, I barely understand the Bible myself. How can I possibly teach these things diligently to my children? Like if only there were, um, if only there were like this, like spiritual family of God, you know, that like, wouldn't this be cool? I mean, just, just envision it with, like what, if only there were like this, place where we could all like read the Bible as individuals and then discuss it in groups and then come into corporate settings where we're <laughs> looking at the same thing. And if only like, if only, oh man, wouldn't it be so cool we could come together and we could like worship together and we could do ministry together. And then we could go to the nations and like bring the gospel to the nations. We could study scripture in context and then apply it in our own context and walk side by side through life, picking each other up when we fall with accountability, setting aside falsehood, speaking truthfully with our neighbors, reading scripture as individuals and applying it and bringing to the body, edifying one another in Christ, what we've been gifted by the spirit to do. And we could walk in fellowship in a move of God that would bring revival to Seattle if only, if only there were some sort of book-by-book book plan that takes the whole family through the whole Bible all together. Oh, well. <laughs> Look at chapter seven with me. Chapter seven, beginning in verse 12. You're gonna see here a theme that pops up all over Deuteronomy. Ubiquitous throughout this book is a reiteration of what will happen if Israel keeps God's promises and what will happen if they fall away from God's promises and God's commands. And because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. 
He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb, the fruit of your ground, your grain, your wine, your oil, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock, and the land that he swore to your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be male or female barren among you or among your livestock. And the Lord will take away from you all the sickness and None of the evil diseases of Egypt, which you knew, will he inflict on you, but he will lay them on all who hate you. So here's this promise that if Israel keeps the commands of God, they would live in the land that he's promised them. He has taken his chosen covenant people to the bank of the Jordan River, and they're about to cross over. The next book of the Bible is Joshua, and it tells the story of Israel then entering the promised land. God has promised to be with his people. You can see some of the conditional promises throughout this. This is one of the distinctives between God's covenant with his chosen people of Israel and the way that we, as the modern New Testament version of Israel, experience God. These are conditional promises that if they would keep the commandments of God, that it would go well with them. And it's also followed by warnings. If you fall away from God, then you're gonna experience some of the same, the same afflictions that your enemies have experienced in the past. God has promised to be with them just as he promised to their forefathers. This connects the events of Deuteronomy all the way back to the book of Genesis and God's repeated promise to Abraham. He's promised that they would be blessed above all peoples. Verse 14 says something that may have stung your heart. There shall not be male or female barren among you or among your livestock. If you're struggling with fertility, experiencing miscarriage, I want to again invite you to be a part of Aiden's Hope, the conference that we put on as a church for bereaved parents, is opening up a brand new track this year to include families experiencing infertility and miscarriage. When I see this text, I actually see hope that God is able. When I read my Bible, I see people facing the same affliction that you and your family are facing, and I see hope. I see God at work. I want, you to, I want to invite you into the hope that only the Word of God brings invite you into Aiden's hope. There's, there's something else in verse 15 that I think deserves some, some further exploration. It says, the Lord will take away from you all the sickness and none of the diseases that you saw in Egypt will be visited upon you, but only those who hate you. We're gonna delve deeper into this in our tough texts event that will, that will be broadcast next week. But this has some pragmatic basis to it. It's not that God gave different laws with different qualifications, like, all right, guys, write this down here. Here are the apodictic laws. Like, no, that, that's a word that we use just to help better categorize and understand the different kinds of laws. He didn't say, like, here come the moral laws. I really mean these. Like, it, it, God just gave the law. You understand? He gave the Ten Commandments to all of Israel. He gave the, the further specifications to Moses thereafter, as we saw last week. But all this collectively was just known as the law. We categorize them into ceremonial laws because it's just easier for us to grasp. This is how you carried out ceremonial worship. We call these apodictic laws. We call these societal laws. We call these the moral laws because they have to do with morality. These are just categories categories whereby we can delineate which text, which law speaks to which particular need. But the pragmatic laws, the apodictic laws, some of these laws specifically had even like hygienic purposes to them. In Deuteronomy 19, you see this bizarre and like disturbingly detailed procedure given for burning a heifer 
and including within the water ashen wood. And the result was this water that was used to dip the robes in. Whoever did the process was considered ceremonially unclean for a time. Okay, if you, read it at, uh, if you read it at face value, like burn the heifer and the dung and everything, you're like, I'm not gonna get a tattoo of any of the verses in this chapter. <laughs> not, there's nothing, not a single tweetable verse in the whole portion of the book. What you're, disc- what you're seeing, I believe, is the advent of detergent 3,200 years before it was found in any other culture. To, to burn these substances was to produce lye. It was to produce the ingredients in soap. It was to produce an ingredient found commonly in modern-day laundry detergents. And the fact that it called for the one who carried out the sacrifice to be isolated, the one that whoever touched his body was then to be isolated, any container with an open lid was to be considered unclean. Like, I think this is describing hygienic practices centuries before germ theory was published. I think that this is partly why Israel is the only, only historic ethnicity who has never holistically experienced a plague because of their adherence to these laws. Everybody else was eating shellfish, the Jews were spared that plague. Like, in fact, this has caused problems for the Jews over the centuries. The Jews would be the only people in a given culture not experiencing a plague, and they, they would suspect that the Jews caused it. But it was because they were adhering to the apodictic law of God. They were spared these diseases. That's why I think it's quite pragmatic in verse 15. And the Lord will take away from you all the sickness, and none of the diseases that you saw in Egypt will be visited upon you if you adhere to my law. I think that was, that was less prophetic in nature and more prescriptive. I think it's quite direct and quite clear and quite pragmatic. Again, we'll delve into that more deeply in tough texts. Let's look at chapter eight together now. Chapter eight. The whole commandment that I command to you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give, your fa- give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might Make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Have you ever heard that verse before? Who in the Old Testament quoted that exact verse? In the New Testament quoted that exact verse? It's Jesus' words, right? Jesus quoted from exactly this text. Did you see how God just gave the reason why some of their afflictions and their wanderings and their difficulty. Now, how many of you likewise are in the midst of a difficulty, a desert season, a famine, and you're wondering why? I can tell you exactly why God did this to his Old Testament people of Israel. It may pertain to why you're experiencing difficulty. And when I read my Bible, according to verse two, it said that God did this so that he would humble them and test them to know what was in their hearts. Is it possible that your own current desert experience has been visited upon you by God so that you would be humbled, so that you'd be tested. Would you take a minute, if you're in the midst of that kind of desert scenario, would you take a moment to actually thank God? Would you, this is gonna be bizarre, but according to the book of James, it's quite appropriate, actually consider the whole opportunity itself pure joy. Consider the whole opportunity joy 
because this testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance comes about only one way, through difficulty. It doesn't come about through an injection. That would be great. It comes about through difficulty. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance and perseverance must finish its work so that you would be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Consider the whole opportunity, that's what it is, it's an opportunity, consider it all joy. Now you may have come from a church that didn't teach the whole counsel of God and you may have come from a church that didn't give you the word and so you may have been under the impression before you came to Highlands Community Church that God only gives us candy, he never gives us difficulty. And you may have had an inaccurate, unbiblical view of God. You may, may be totally unfamiliar with the God of the Bible as he has revealed himself because it, my text just says quite clearly, verse three, that God let his people hunger. Did you see that? I mean, look at it. He humbled you and let you hunger. That God would actually allow you to experience hunger. He would allow you to experience famine and difficulty and desert and thirst. Why? So that he could feed you he can give you water miraculously. He can come through. He can save the day. And he gets 100% of the credit for the deliverance. All of this was to humble his people. Would you thank God for teaching you humility? And you take this cue, take this opportunity, see this for what it is, and humble yourself under God's mighty hand. Then in due time, he would lift you up. This has come about to humble you and to test you. Resolve now to emerge on the other side, the distant shore of this testing of your faith with your faith stronger now than it was before and to have fruit to show for this testing of your faith. To point back to the river that he led you across and say, that's where God carried me across. Build a monument to his faithfulness and say, this is what God accomplished in my life through that difficulty. Do not miss the opportunity to learn humility and resolve now, the whole thing's one big foregone conclusion, you know exactly how this testing of your faith is gonna turn out. You're gonna be faithful to God in the famine, you're gonna be faithful to God in the times of plenty. Look at verse four, one of, the, one of those understated miracles that I love. I wanna write a book about like the unappreciated miracles. Your clothing did not wear out on you and your foot did not swell these 40 years. My son Ace can turn a brand new pair of jeans into some of those ripped jeans in like a matter of an hour. It's amazing. He's gifted. Like this is a miracle of God. <laughs> know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity and which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper and you shall eat and be full and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. To this day, in the Rift Valley south of the Dead Sea, you can mine copper and iron. And the southeastern mountains of Lebanon, which are in the modern day northern borders of Israel, iron is still prevalent. How could Moses have known that? He is several miles away from either of these deposits and he could not see through the ground. How could he have known which precious metals were prevalent within the promised land? It is almost as though the word of God were inspired. Look at verse 11. 
Take care lest you forget that the Lord your God, by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied, hello, modern day, prosperous United States of America, and that all you have is multiplied, hello, modern day Seattle homeowners, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember that the Lord your you you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the power to get wealth, that He may confirm His covenant that He swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today, here comes the warning, that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. So it opens up with an explanation as to why they would be in the desert. It's to test them. It's to humble them. And it closes with the warning that if they fall away, they will likewise experience the same kind of affliction that God visited upon their enemies. And in the meantime, in the midst of this chapter is a warning on how to make sure you survive prosperity because a prosperous time can be the most difficult thing that visits your faith. You can kick back in your house on your recliner that you bought with your own money and say, I think I'm okay. I think I've got this. I think I'm okay. And then this is a stern warning that is the Lord who makes you able to get wealth. God gets 100% of the credit for all of this. These are the texts that Jesus draws from when he's tempted by the devil in the desert. Here Here's Matthew chapter four. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry and the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, that's quite, that's quite a premise, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We know that. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. Look at how he's raising him up. Satan has been given a degree of dominion. He is the, 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 the ruler of the air, the spirit at work of this age. And he is tempting, he's taunting Jesus with some of that authority. All right, look for this and some of Satan's temptations. He will lift you up. If it lifts you up, it elevates you, gives you greater dominion and authority, this is similar to what he tempted Jesus with. This is what led to Satan's downfall in the, in, in the first place. The book of Ezekiel said that he aspired to be like the most high in his own heart. And so he's tempting Jesus with an elevated status. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. He's drawing from Psalm 91 here, right? He's taking Psalm 91, he's plucking out of context something from Psalm 91. And we'll talk about that in greater context in a moment. 
Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. When Satan plucked, or if you will, eisegeted text from Psalm 91, he showed great audacity. Okay, he is trying to quote the Bible to Jesus. Satan knows scripture and he is here trying to use the word to tempt the word. It's audacious, isn't it? He stops in Psalm 91 when he crafts this temptation for Jesus by plucking scripture out of context and setting a trap for Jesus. He stops just short. He uses the penultimate verse immediately before the text of Psalm 91 that describes the crushing of the serpent. Isn't that clever of Satan? But Jesus knows this. Jesus responds with scripture in context. According to Matthew 4, what I see, it is literally satanic to take scripture out of context. And so I'm gonna give you all of my tools, okay? I wanna equip you. This is gonna be a very practical, practical application of a biblical text. And I'm going to equip you until I'm out of a job. All right, you won't need me anymore after this. I want you to understand scripture on your own. I want you to read the Bible on your own. Okay, if you're only hearing the word of God once, it's like eating bread once a week. That's it. Okay, that's terrible. That's not nearly enough for you. It's also not keto friendly. Like, this is the word of God, and we have seen it quoted in De- originally established in Deuteronomy and then quoted by Jesus in the gospel that, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In its context, originally, we saw that Jesus was referring to the manna from heaven that God would give to Israel once a day. And after that, it was gone. It was expired. It was useless. Suddenly, give us this day our daily bread takes on a whole new meaning, doesn't it? And Jesus multiplying the bread for the thousands takes on a whole new meaning, doesn't it? And referring to himself as the bread of life takes on a whole new meaning, doesn't it? Do you think based on these teachings that you should read God's word every day? I do. I have two ribbons in my Bible. One reads the whole Bible once a year. The other one moves more slowly in conjunction with what we are doing as a church. That's how I read my Bible. As I read my Bible, I keep in mind these important forms of context. One of them is the historical context. Keep in mind the historical context, the original earthly author and his original earthly audience. When you understand that Peter was writing 1 Peter to the persecuted church throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Bithynia, and Asia in the year 64 being persecuted by Nero, wherein believers would be set on fire to light up the streets, It takes on a whole new meaning when you read him say, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, which perishes though refined by fire, may be proven genuine and result in praise and glory and honor on the day that Jesus Christ is revealed. When you realize that you're reading a contraband manual for persecuted Christians surviving Nero, the text comes to life, doesn't it? Understand the original historical context. Who wrote it and to whom did he write? Why did he write? Understand also the the cultural context. The people of the Bible lived in a different culture than our culture today. 
if, if, we had, if we had a time machine, we could bring like Boaz from the book of Ruth right here on the platform with us. And we were to describe to him like how we come to agreements on transactions. And I say like, I, I, will, I will buy your Nissan Xterra from you for this much. And you say like, that's a fair price. All right, and then Boaz, here's what we do. Okay, like we've agreed upon the price, Boaz, and so on. I'm gonna stick my hand out, right? And she's gonna stick her hand out. And then we, we, we bind our hands together and we move them up and then down and then back up again and then back down again. And if you're feeling really generous, up again and down again. And that's how we know we have a deal. Boaz would say, it's gross. It's weird. Just trade sandals like a normal person. There's a cultural context to scripture and you must, you must interpret scripture through that cultural lens and understand what it originally meant culturally. Understand the original context of Ephesus. Understand the original context of Rome. Understand the original context. Understand also the grammatical context. The ancient Catholic church translated the Bible into the Latin Vulgate in part because they knew that people couldn't read the Bible for themselves. It was a, an act of rebellion in the, the Reformation whereby Martin Luther translated the Bible into German for the people so the people could read the Bible on their own. Do you think it's a coincidence that that happened the exact same time that the printing press was invented? The very first book ever mass produced was the Bible, the Gutenberg Bible to equip the people to read the Bible on their own. Now, a, a funny reiteration of that kind of came back up in the Protestant church, wherein people with seminary degrees were trained in Hebrew and trained in Greek, and so they knew the original languages of the Bible. Now, but in any other generation of Christian before you, you have free tools at your disposal, okay? Like, I have a subscription to Logos that came with my doctoral studies. It's probably super expensive. I don't use it. Logos takes forever to boot up. I just go to biblehub.com, and it's free. There. So you don't need me anymore. Go to the interlinear Bible on biblehub.com, see the original Hebrew, see the original Greek, do word studies, and find where these words occur elsewhere in scripture. You can look at the original Hebrew, look at the original Greek. You don't need me anymore. Understand the grammatical context, the historical context, the cultural context. Now this one, this one's pretty basic. This one, this one actually is like ENC 1101, like basic reading comprehension skill, skill. just understand the literary context. Like, which category of literature are you reading? Are you reading a letter? You read it like a letter. Are you reading a historical book? Read it like a historical book. Are you reading something that's prophetic? Read it like prophecy. Don't interpret an historical book like it's something else. Don't interpret a metaphorical text from the Psalms like it's something else. When you're reading prophecy, understand it as prophecy. When you're reading history, understanding it, understand it as history. If you look at Genesis like it were Psalms, you look at Genesis, which re records historically how God created the earth, and you interpret that through the lens that you would interpret the Psalms that use metaphor and allegory, you're gonna misinterpret Genesis. Okay, again, this is not even seminary training. This is like basic, you know, freshman English, okay? What kind of literature is it? Now, there's another, there's another kind of context that I'll employ. There's historical, cultural, grammatical, literary context. And this, one, this one's a fancy seminary word, canonical context, okay? That means where it fits within the canon of scripture. I'm gonna look like even bigger nerd than I already look like to you, but like, I genuinely like, get emotional looking at the table of contents in the Bible, <laughs> right? Here's why. Those books tell a story, man. 
I mean, I, I see Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then this text, Deuteronomy. I see the law, and I know why the law came about. The law came about because man fell, sin entered the picture in Eden, and God made a way for man to be saved. And then I see these prophecies made. When I, look at, when I look at Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah and I look at all these prophetic books, I know what they're talking about. They're talking about how the Messiah is gonna come one day. The anointed one's gonna arrive. The Savior is en route. And then there's a 400-year intertestamental period after Malachi and then comes Matthew, Mark, and Luke and John. And I tear up because I know that everything that was promised before is fulfilled in these books. And then like I am such a spoiled kid when it comes to being a pastor in the era I'm a pastor because I literally have God-inspired books that tell me how to do ministry. I have 1 Corinthians that tells me exactly how worship's to be done. I have 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus that spell out for us exactly like what ordination is and exactly how the pastorate works and what the qualifications are for a deacon, a deaconess, an elder. Like I see everything written out for me. It's so easy for me. And then I know that the good guys win in the end. The revelation describes God winning forever and defeating evil forevermore. Do you realize that we all, we've only had that book since the year 89 AD? So when I look at the table of contents in the Bible, I see a story just by the content of the book summarized there. Where does the book that you're reading fit within the canonical context? Moreover, how big was that person's Bible at that time? We have a much thicker Bible than David had, for example. I mean, when Moses tells us to teach diligently to our children all that God has commanded. You realize that this was the fifth and final book of the law at the time. He only had five books. We have a full 61 books more now. So buck up, Highlands. <laughs> we're to teach diligently to our children everything that God has commanded. And we're to do so in its proper context, historical context, cultural context, literary context, grammatical context, canonical context. It's literally satanic to take scripture out of context. I believe Jesus when he quotes Deuteronomy saying, the man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So how, Jesse, how do we do that exactly as a church? We have some tools for you. Our whole church is aligned around this curriculum plan. And we've used it knowing that I, I, used, to, I used to write this content I used to, and then I, I, I was the brand manager for this content. Right? And no, I, I don't receive any royalties from Explore the Bible. I wish I did. That would be awesome. But I was recruited by Lifeway. I was a pastor in Orlando, and I wrote a few books for Lifeway. And so they moved my family up to Nashville. And my first job was to write Explore the Bible for students. And then six months after that, I was moved to a different role that involved overseeing all the age levels of Explore the Bible. And so I oversaw the relaunch of Explore the Bible. When... I looked at the sales data. I saw that the kids' version was in the tank. When we first launched Explore the Bible for Kids, it was in perfect alignment with what students did and with what adults did. And that sounds really cool. To a senior pastor, that sounds awesome. The idea of like the whole church getting in the minivan after, after the, 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 all, every family gets in the minivan after worship and they've all looked at the exact same Bible passage. Doesn't this, that sound cool? Sounds very cool to me. Here's the problem. It sounds utterly horrific to somebody who teaches five-year-olds Song of Solomon for 13 weeks straight. <laughs> if you're not familiar with it, Song of Solomon is like the super romantic book of the Old Testament. Imagine teaching romance to five-year-olds for three months. 
I said, okay, I get it, I get it. In practice, it doesn't work because our sales were really big at first and then they just went in the tank. Now, sales aren't everything, but they do indicate something, right? If churches aren't using your stuff, what are those churches telling you? Your stuff isn't good. Vice president had said, look, don't bring this up. I brought it up. I took the whole kids team, everybody who wrote preschool and baby and toddler and younger kids and older kids, all the, all the whole team that wrote Explore the Bible for Kids, I took them out to Panera Bread, downtown Nashville, next to the Batman building. And I asked like, what would you do if you could make something from scratch? An expository, meaning book by book through the Bible in the original context to today's context, starting with the text and applying it today. What would you do if you made your, your own book by book curriculum for kids? And at first everybody was quiet. I was like, come on, I bought you Panera. Like you have to, you have to be honest with me. And then Shelly Harris, one of our content editors, what's up Shelly, we miss you, like spoke up and said, it wouldn't look like what it looks like now. And then Tim Pollard, the team leader, what's up Tim, I love you man, said, I would make a book by book three year plan so that by the time they start middle school, they've been taught every book of the Bible four times. And then when they enter middle school, that's when they slow down. That's when they walk in lockstep with mom and dad. I was not taught book by book through the Bible and basic Bible skills all the way through my preschool and elementary school years. Was anybody here taught every book of the Bible four times? I was not. And so we produced these. We already use these as a church. These are the family cards. This is what you get, mom and dad, if you have somebody in preschool, elementary school, sometimes, uh, sometimes even younger than that, that tells you what your child was taught. But we're also gonna introduce something new this week. This is explore the Bible at home, okay? This is something that you can use to teach your young one the Bible, your preschool, your elementary school, or the Bible. Again, if you have somebody in student ministry, they're already studying the same passage as you. If you have a child, this is your opportunity to lead your family in Bible study. Okay, if, I'm speaking mostly to dads here. If you're a single mom, you're pulling double duty. So I'm talking to you too. If you're a single person, you're a family of one. This still applies to you. You don't have to take one of these, as cute as this looks but I do want you to study book by book through the Bible with your church family. Now this idea, dads, of you leading your family in Bible study may sound horrific. It may sound like I'm gonna look like the biggest hypocrite in the world. Like Jesse, my kids hear what French word I say when I hit my thumb with the hammer. Like they hear me giving a running commentary of what every other driver on the road is doing. Like they hear the helpful tips that I try to give the Seahawks through my TV. Like they, they're gonna think I'm such a hypocrite. Who am I, Jesse? Jesse, you don't know what it's like to have your own sin and then try to teach other people the Bible. Man, you know how I feel at 5.59 p.m. on Saturdays and 7.59 a.m. on Sundays and then again at 9.29 and then again at 11.09 every week for the rest of my life until Jesus comes back. Ah! I know exactly what it's like to stumble and fall and mess up and then get in front of people and open up the word of God. But you know what I've found? The Bible is faithful every time. Every time. So I want you to open up your Bible at the table, Dad. Okay, and like the first time you do it, your, your son's gonna say something under his breath. Okay, daughter's gonna roll her eyes. Might even like storm away and leave you sitting at the table. But you know who's gonna be right next to you when that happens? Your bride, because she is so ecstatic that you're trying to do this. Okay, women of Highlands, brides of Highlands, do I speak the truth? Is that really attractive when your husband tries to lead the family spiritually? You hear that, men? 
So try. Okay, the first time, you're gonna bomb. The second time, it's gonna be incredibly awkward. The third time, it's gonna be painful. The fourth time, it's gonna be the worst of all. Fifth time, it's gonna get worse than that. The sixth time, it becomes part of your routine. Okay, fast forward with me. By like the 17th time that you open up your Bible with your family at the table, things gonna shift. And the spiritual trajectory of your children is gonna be altered forever. And you're gonna be leading your family spiritually. You're gonna open up the word of God to them and that's gonna be the real you to them. Not the you when you stumble and when you fall. They're gonna say, my dad is the one who opens up the word of God for our family. The one who prays with our family, the one who leads us spiritually. He may not be perfect, but that's gonna become the real you. You're gonna redefine who you are in your family. If you've been emotionally unavailable, here's a tool for you to open up your heart and literally open up the word of God to your family. And literally, we're also gonna give one per family a Bible to every family with sixth graders and below at Highlands Community Church today. They're available at the preschool entrances. I want you to open up your heart to your family. I want you to open up the word of God to your family. I want you to take the tools that your church has given you. I want you to lead your families. Teach them everything that God has commanded. Teach diligently your children everything the Lord has laid out because man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So open this up and lead your families, men. Lead your families. Lead them straight to Jesus. Lead your families. Lead your children to God. Lead, lead, men, book by book, with your church, through the Bible, every book of it. If you've been coming to Highlands Community Church, you hear the gospel every week and you've been putting it off. Yesterday, I officiated the funeral for a teenager who was planning to visit this morning. You're not guaranteed next week. Do not wait to abide by the word of God. Would you give your life to Jesus right here and now? Let's pray together. God, I believe your word. I believe that you love the world so much that you gave your one and only son, that if I would believe in him, I would not die but have everlasting life. I confess, oh God, that I have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. I confess, God, that the wages of my sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. I believe you, Jesus, that you are the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through you, Jesus. So right here and now, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, I confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. Highlands Community Church, would you say Jesus is Lord? Say it, Jesus is Lord. I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. Now God, let me be saved. Let me be saved. Let me be saved in Jesus' name, amen. Can we stand and worship together? Some of us for the very first time as brand new believers in Jesus.